The following audio is from the King's Chapel in Clifton, Virginia. For more information about our church or to listen to more sermons from this series, you can visit us online at thekingschapel.org. Good morning, everyone. If you have your scriptures with you, you can open them to Mark chapter 13 which is where we were last week, and we are going to be picking up in verse 14. If you didn't get an opportunity to be here or to, to listen to that message or watch it on YouTube, I'd really encourage you to go back and to, to revisit that message because a lot of this will make a lot more sense um, with that context. Here in chapter 13 of Mark's gospel, as we continue through the gospel, I hope you're feeling ready because as we study in Mark, we are looking at a passage about the second coming of Jesus and, and the end of the world as we know it, Right? And this is uh, both the most prophetic and apocalyptic of Jesus' teaching in the entire New Testament, along with its parallels in in Matthew 24 and Luke 21, which which refer to the same prophecies from Jesus. Whenever this subject of the end times and the last days comes up, I know it can can tend to make people feel a little bit uneasy, and and there's a lot of questions that come along with this subject. So I'll just warn you, today will not answer all of your questions. The second coming of our Lord is something that we look forward to with hope and anticipation and and joy, but it's something that is shrouded in mystery, particularly in the timing in which it will take place. We just don't know. But if you do have questions about the last days, I'm more than happy to discuss any of those with you. You can feel free to email me at bill at (laughs) thekingschapel.org, and we'll, we'll set you right, okay? When it comes to interpreting New Testament prophecy, prophecies that, that we find in the New Testament, particularly about the return of Christ. We see these in, in the Olivet Discourse, which is the passage we're looking at today, uh, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Peter, uh, and of course, Revelation. And when it comes to this subject of prophecy in the New Testament, looking to our Lord's coming, there are a lot of different ways to approach the interpretation. And, and there are several different interpretive techniques that faithful Christians have, have used throughout the years in order to try to understand each of these prophetic text, what is not fully revealed on the surface of these texts. And all of this can get incredibly complex. I'm just going to give you some of the categories and I'll I'll mention a little bit about them, but then I'm going to encourage a a specific approach to the text that we actually began to look at last week. Uh, The first approach to New Testament prophecy that that maybe you will have heard of is called the preterist approach, or preterist if you want to say it that way, P-R-E, etc., and I'm going to put these up on the screen as well for you, um, well, somebody, someone is, so that you can uh, read the handwriting, right? And so there are, the preterism, what that is, is it's a look at, at these prophecies in the New Testament, and it says that essentially all of these things, what Jesus is describing here in Mark 13, what Revelation describes, all of it, or much of it, already happened. So it's actually a backward look, it's a look at, at the past to say a lot of this happens within the first century, within a generation of Jesus. That is the, the fall of Jerusalem, uh, a genocide of Jewish people in Judea, and, and later the persecution of the church by Nero and Domitian and, and others. And they'll say this great tribulation and all this stuff that was talked about actually happened a long time in the past. I should distinguish there are two different groups when it comes to this approach to uh, interpretation. One would be a full preterist, which says everything happened in the past, including the return of Christ, in 70 AD, but we just didn't see it. But a lot of this has already taken place versus a partial preterism, which would say, yes, certainly some of these events have already occurred. Some of them have taken place and some of them, some of the prophetic writings are yet future in their fulfillment. So there's preterism. There's another approach that is spiritualism. Spiritualism is an approach to texts like Revelation to say that 
essentially, uh, there are not specific literal prophecies to be fulfilled. Rather, there are spiritual uh, truths. There are things to, to latch onto as believers to endure through difficult times and uh, to look forward with hope to God's ultimate triumph, good over evil, light over darkness. And this is an approach to the interpretation that would, would spiritualize a lot of the language, which is frankly very spiritual in nature, very uh, difficult to understand, literally. The third approach that we might look at is called historism. And this is basically like a, a mapping to the events in the Olivet Discourse or in Revelation to uh, different things that have happened throughout our history. So we look at, in particular, those that approach the scriptures this, this way, we look at European political history, and they look at things like the, the rise of Napoleon and um, World War I and World War II, and they look in those things with both a history book open and, and their news apps open on their phone and try to tie each of these events that we see in the scriptures to what is happening in their day. And one of the downsides of this approach is that it is, it is uh, a very European-centric, typically, which this is God's global plan of salvation for the world. The other um, downside of this is it's very speculative most of the time. The good thing about this approach to it is that what we looked at last week is, is Jesus describes a lot of the tribulations that come. Paul describes similarly these tribulations and hardships that come as like contractions, as like birth pangs that anticipate the coming of our Lord. So we can look at, at what is happening in history and we can look for strength to endure through difficult trials through things that are really a type of what is to come in Christ's ultimate coming. The fourth approach is futurism. And this is everything is going to happen other than maybe some of the events that we looked at today or will look at today and last week. Everything that is talked about in these prophetic writings is yet future. It's going to happen at, at some day. We look forward to it, but most of it has not yet occurred. And there's another extreme version or more extreme version of futurism called dispensationalism, which is the most popular version of this in uh, America, but it's a relatively new, I can't even spell it. Can you guys look at the board over there? <laughs> Dispensationalism. This is what my seminary uh, teaches, although with, with somewhat open hands these days, because the truth is you can see from the, this variety of interpretive techniques that that there's not a whole lot of agreement. Dispensationalism is a future approach that, that draws a clear line of distinction between the church and Israel in the New Testament, okay? And, and that, is, that is kind of their, their core doctrine. And dispensationalists would look forward to a, a pre-tribulation rapture of the saints to be taken up for seven years while things get really, really bad on the earth. That's not necessarily the case for futurists. So why am I giving you all this? I don't know, just to bore you, I guess. Um, I hope not, actually. But I, I just want to show you that there is a lot of complexity uh, to the way we approach these, these writings that are difficult to understand. And all of this it can get complex, especially when we start talking about then, depending on our approach to this, then what is our approach to the millennium in Revelation 20? Or what is our approach to the rapture text in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4? And you can see how this can get very complex very quickly and hard to keep track of. Can we uh, maybe agree on that? Some of you are super interested in this stuff. And you're waiting, you're waiting in, in great anticipation of, Mark, which one of these are you? And then, Mark, which is your approach to the millennium? And what is your approach to the rapture? And we can talk about all those things. Some of you are already asleep, so I'll remind you what Mark 13 says in it. He says, stay awake. Stay awake. <laughs> this is complex stuff. And so what I want to encourage you to do is to approach this passage and passages like this the way we talked about last week, which is a, simply a bifocal perspective. It's where when you look through the top half of the lenses, you can see long into the distance. 
into the future, and also to look through the bottom half of those lenses in which you see the literal fulfillment of some of these prophecies within a generation of Jesus and his followers. That's what we looked at last week. My job is to not confuse you or impress you with with big words, uh, but to simply teach the word of God as clearly as it's laid out for us. And so I don't want to make this all theoretical and get bogged down in, in the nuances of all the, the end view times, but I would just say that in, in, in light of this complexity, if you look at the different passages in, in Mark 13 and Luke 21 and Matthew 24, I was reading in the ESV study Bible this week at the notes. And we trust those notes as, as almost like scripture, right? We trust those notes. It's an excellent study Bible. But in each of those passages, you see that the person assigned to interpreting or, or describing approached the passage in a slightly different way. My, my goal today is not to give you any lack of confidence in the word of God. We can have steadfast confidence in the word of God, but just to acknowledge that, that these passages are difficult. And so what I think we should do instead is ask a much simpler interpretive question, and it's this. What would this prophecy have meant to its original audience? How would it have encouraged the church both when it was first given and, and throughout the ages even today? And then a secondary question would be, what does this prophecy tell us? What is there in this for us today as a church? In it, we see encouragement to be strengthened, to stand firm, to lift up our eyes at the coming of our Redeemer, to endure through trial, to look forward with hope and anticipation to, to a coming of a King that will make all things new. Jesus is coming back, and, and in the Scripture, the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. And what is plain in Scripture is that He is coming back. And the question for us is, are you ready? Are you ready for his return? More specifically, are you a citizen of his kingdom? He is coming to to bring a kingdom, a kingdom that is already, he has already established that kingdom when he came and dwelt in our midst. He says the kingdom is in your midst. Kingdom is already and it's not yet. It will be fully consummated at his second coming. Are you a citizen of that kingdom? Have you given your life to Jesus? I want you to, to turn with me, if you haven't already, to Mark 13 where we'll continue reading from where we left off last week. And Jesus has just told his disciples that in a few decades, the temple in Jerusalem is going to be torn down brick by brick. The city is going to be destroyed. And he warns them that when he see, they see these things coming, that they ought to get out of town immediately. They, in their minds, they tie this, this very ominous teaching from Jesus to his return. But this must signify his return when these things be. And they're curious what is going to happen and how this is all going to play out. But he says, he says not only will this happen where the temple's torn down, but he's coming back on the clouds to consummate his everlasting kingdom. And he's going to give some, some definite signs and warnings that precede the fall of Jerusalem. And then he's going to say that at his return at the end of the age, it will actually come with little warning. And so I want you to, to take out those bifocals and look at what he describes in this passage with that, that perspective. And remember that in Jerusalem in AD 70, this prophecy was largely uh, fulfilled as the city was conquered by the surrounding Romans. The temple was torn down brick by brick. And in, in the greatest single loss in human history, 1.1 million Jewish people in that battle, in that conflict, lost their lives. And, and nearly 100,000 were taken into captivity. And so, so Jesus in this, he's pointing to this day of the Lord. This is this, this prophetic word borrowed from the Old Testament prophets. This day of the Lord that also echoes, it points to, it, it, it's a signpost, a contraction that leads to an ultimate day of the Lord in which he will return, in which his wrath will be poured out to finally end sin and usher in his everlasting kingdom. 
I studied this in depth over the, over the last several years in the prophets. They all, many of them in the Old Testament will talk about this coming day of the Lord. And this day of the Lord is two things. It's, it's one, it's, a, it's a, a judgment from the Lord, a period of God's wrath being poured out on the unrighteous and those that have rejected him. And simultaneously, it refers to this hope of after that, this restoration, this new creation, as the presence of God fills the city as his kingdom is established over the nations. And so for the disciples, they have these things intermingled, commingled in their minds. So when Jesus says the temple will be destroyed, they assume this is the sign of the end of the age. But Jesus draws a distinction, a line of distinction between these things. So they ask him, when will this happen? When will this happen? And here it is, verse 14. He's going to clear it up right away. He says this. When you see the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. I love that parenthetical that is inserted there. Let the reader understand. Because we don't, right? It's difficult to understand. And here Jesus is referring to Daniel 9.27, this, this abomination of desolation. This would have actually been familiar language to the disciples in which an outsider will come into the temple and establish profane worship, profane the altar of God. And, and this was thought to have actually happened about 200 years before this, where, where this guy, a conquering, conquering Seleucid king, Antiochus Epiphanes, he comes into the temple and he sets up an altar to Zeus and he starts burning swine on the altar and doing all kinds of things to desecrate the temple of God. And yet Jesus says, no, something like that will come. And that is your warning sign to get out of Jerusalem, to get out of the city. And this will occur in the destruction in AD 70. When we don't understand scriptures, text and scripture, one of the best ways to interpret scripture is by looking at other scripture and seeing what it has to say about these same things. So, so what is that when you see the abomination of desolation? If you turn to Luke chapter 21, he actually interprets this for us. He says this in verse 20 of Luke 21. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you know that its desolation has come near. So, so Luke, in interpreting the, the words of Jesus there, it, it says that, that when the city is surrounded by armies, this is the sign, this is the sign that they ought to be looking for. Then continuing in, in verse 15, it says, let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. Notice the details. It's, it's if those who are in Judea ought to flee, it's pray that it doesn't happen in winter or that you're not pregnant when this occurs. He's, he's talking about a specific catastrophic event in a specific locale. He's, he's pointing them to what will happen in just decades as the city is surrounded and conquered by the Romans. And as we talked about last week, he's also pointing to this as a, as a, a precursor, a forerunner, a type for what is to come ultimately in his return. Then he says, if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. As we looked at last week, this prophecy from Jesus was decisively and tragically fulfilled in AD 70 as the Romans sieged and destroyed the city through great tribulation. But as that day of the Lord came with, with signs and warnings, Jesus is then going to talk about his coming, a greater day of the Lord in which Christ returns to make all things new. And so now we look back at the long distance view of our bifocal lenses as he shifts from Jerusalem's destruction 
to his ultimate return. And, and so what I want to do is just draw out three, uh, three principles, three characteristics, I should say, of Christ's second coming that we can hold on to steadfastly. And the first is this, that Christ will return unmistakably. Unmistakably. What, what do I mean by that? I mean that at the consummation of his kingdom, he will return physically and visibly in a way that is unmistakable, unmissable. He will come to, to put everything under his rule and reign, and it will be a worldwide cataclysmic event. A few years ago, I was in Manhattan, and maybe you've had this kind of interaction, but uh, this woman came up to me, and she wanted to tell me that Jesus had already returned. And, and so I said, oh, really? I, where is Jesus? And, and she said to me, she's in China. And now immediately, I had some issues there, but we got out a Bible, and uh, she pointed to part of a, a verse in Revelation that she had interpreted a certain way. There was this leader that had, had come up kind of secretly under the radar in China, and uh, some people thought that it was the return of Christ. But the bottom line was she was deceived, and Jesus warns us about this. He says, if anyone, in verse 21, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders. And that's interesting. It's, it's scary, isn't it? That this kind of demonic power could be given to people to deceive, possibly even believers, the elect. He says they will perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect, that is Christians. He says that, therefore, be on guard. Be on guard. I have told you all these things beforehand. You've received this warning. We will recognize him at his coming. Listen to what he says next. He says, but in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers and the heavens will be shaken. Luke describes these as, as signs in the heavens and on the earth. He, he talks about the distress of nations, the roaring of seas. This is the same kind of language that the prophets use throughout the Old Testament to describe the coming day of the Lord. And so is it, is it literal or is it figurative? Well, we can see times in, for example, Amos, where he is talking to the northern kingdom of Israel and he's saying that Assyria is going to come and conquer you and it's going to be a, a day of the Lord where the sun doesn't shine, where, where the earth is shrouded in, in darkness. Is this literal or is, is this figurative? It's difficult to be sure. But what we see next in this particular prediction of this day of the Lord, this ultimate day of the Lord, Jesus makes clear that, that something very glorious and drastic and dramatic is going to take place in the sky. Look at this. He says, Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. That's hard to miss. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Uh, a couple days ago, there was a big lightning storm. Anyone see any good lightning storms in the last few days? Yeah, some of them were, were pretty strong, sweeping through the neighborhoods. Actually, a few years ago, we were at the beach with our, our college and young adult ministry, and we were uh, enjoying our time there on our beach retreat, uh, playing games. People were swimming in the pool. Dinner was cooking. When suddenly, the house got struck by lightning. A, a loud uh, Clap of, of thunder immediate, the lights flash, all our equipment fried, people were running, there's chaos, there's smoke, all kinds of stuff. But can I tell you that when that happened, it, it was unmistakable what had happened. Everybody knew, everybody knew that something had happened. And Jesus says his coming, it will be like that, with a trumpet blast, unmistakable, visible, seen by all. Secondly, 
he goes on to say that he will return unexpectedly. Unexpectedly. Jumping to verse 32, he says, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. So tune out, go to sleep, go about your business, it's fine. No, 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 he says, be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. We don't know. But for some reason, that hasn't stopped uh, prominent people, Christians, from predicting with attempted exactness the timing of the second coming. They'll take some, some verses from somewhere, interpret it a certain way with a, a math that they've created, and they'll see parallels in the current crazy news cycle or political climate, and they'll make some bold predictions. And I'll give you some examples. Martin Luther did this during the Protestant Reformation. He said that, that the papacy was the Antichrist, that the Pope was the man of lawlessness that had come, uh, and, and he predicted that in that context, that the world would end in 1600. And it didn't. It did not. The Jehovah's Witnesses, they predicted that Jesus would return and the world would end in the 1940s, which at that time was probably a pretty believable uh, thing to say because of World War II and everything that was happening around the world at that time, but it didn't happen. Numerous Bible-believing Christians were convinced that the world would end in the year 2000 during the chaos of, of Y2K, that that would be it. And, and you know, I, I, even um, Jonathan Edwards thought the year 2000 was the year that, that it would happen, but it didn't. Not only that, but this is interesting to consider. Our dating system, B.C. and A.D., uh, that was created by humans, and though anchored on the life of Christ, was probably imprecise by about four to six years. So if the world was going to end at uh, Y2K, it should have happened in about 1994, and it didn't. I don't know why I keep saying that. You know that, right? Are we here? <laughs> This morning. <laughs> More recently, it was the Mayans. Their clock was going to run out in 2012, and they thought, well, when the clock runs out, obviously the world will end, and it didn't uh, after that. I'm not going to say this guy's name, but um, there's one prominent ish Christian who predicted the world would end in 2011, 2012, 2013, June of 2019. I'm not sure what he's cooking up next, but we'll see. And there's been a lot of predictions over the last 2,000 years. And what's so interesting to me is, is that many of the predictors, when they found out they were wrong, they just set a new date. Let's try this again. Why do we listen to this stuff? Jesus has been, been so clear that no one knows the hour. And yet we anticipate with great longing his return. We want him to come. We, we see the turmoil around us. We see our nation uh, doing all kinds of crazy things. And we pray, come, Lord Jesus, come. When will this happen? Peter got this question a lot. And, and he was asked by his contemporaries when the Lord would return. He, he dealt with the speculation often, just 20 to 30 years after the ascension. And so Peter writes to his followers in, in the dispersion, Jesus' followers um, in the dispersion, and he says this in 2 Peter 3.8. He says, don't forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish. Aren't you glad he was patient with you? Not wanting you to perish. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The, the elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Listen to what he says. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, here's the question. What kind of 
people ought you to be? What kind of people ought we to be? And then he tells us, he says, you ought to live holy and godly lives. Holy and godly lives. We're going to talk next week about what readiness looks like. But Peter lays it out there so simply and humbly. Holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. How do we speed its coming? Jesus says that, that, that he will return when the gospel has been preached to, to all the nations. One way that we, we speed his coming and we anticipate it is that we spread this gospel good news throughout the world. The point is this. We don't know when he will come. Yet Jesus tells us to be ready. Are you prepared? He will return unmistakably. He will return visibly. He will return unexpectedly. And thirdly, we'll see that many will be unprepared. Unprepared. What, is, what does preparation look like? I think we, we saw that a little bit in Peter's writing there, but it's simply this. Will you be faithful here and now in the ministry that God has called you to? whether it's with your family or in this church or, or if he's led you to, to minister at George Mason University, wherever it is, will you be found faithfully doing the, the ordinary and incredible work of ministry empowered by his spirit? Jesus says it this way in Acts 1.6. He says, it says, so when they had come together, they asked him, this is at the ascension, he's getting ready to leave. They asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And then he says it to them again. He says, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. These things are fixed. But then he says this. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and this is our task until he returns. He says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, listen to this, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So when he returns, again, this question is, what kind of life ought we to be living as Peter asks it? Will, will you be found like this, an active ambassador of his kingdom to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth? Will you be found doing his work? Or will you be found as apathetic or, or anxious or in, in outright rebellion against God and his decrees? For the believer, the second coming of Jesus, it is something that we look forward to with, with hope. But in it, we also face a warning to be prepared. Let me tell you, eschatology, this, this anticipation of our Christ's return, when we take it seriously, it is purifying. It is purifying. It puts our, our life in perspective. It puts our, our, our lifestyle in perspective. And it, it brings it into submission under God. As he has promised, he will return to consummate his kingdom. For the believer in the second coming, we look forward to hope. But here's, here's the warning. In Matthew 24, Jesus gives a warning from Scripture of Noah in Genesis 6. He says, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, watching Netflix and playing fantasy football, <laughs> until that day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware, until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. As Jesus is prophesying to his disciples the destruction of Jerusalem, his, his final return. The disciples, they hadn't yet understood that he, he would come not just once, 
but twice. His first coming would be in poverty and in, in humility. He would come and dwell among us in the incarnation. He would dwell in, in our weakness, being tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. He would be betrayed, beaten, mocked, scorned, killed, hung on a cross. They didn't understand all that either. And yet he rose from the grave. He ascended into heaven and he tells them through this prophecy that he is going to return. He will return to judge the world, to put an end to, to the work of Satan, sin, and death, and to establish the righteous for eternity with him under his loving rule and reign. That day will come. But in the meantime, his heart is this. It's for as many people as possible to come into his kingdom, to repent, to turn, to repent or perish, as Jesus says. And yet, he has not yet returned because there is still kingdom work to be done. I love the way Luke puts this. Luke puts, in the context of this frankly scary prophetic passage from Jesus' his teaching, he quotes Jesus as saying this, now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads. Because destruction is drawing near? No, no, no. He says, because your redemption is drawing near. Will we be found ready? What does that mean? More on this next week, but it's simple steadfastness, simple faithfulness where God has called you. And can I tell you that as we look forward with hope to his return, it is, is it, it is a hope that is so worth it. So worth it. I'm gonna read a passage this morning as we conclude as the band comes up. And there may be some of you wondering, how will we endure these things? If we are to go through these increasing contractions of, of trial and tribulation and persecution and opposition and all these things, how will we endure? Some of you in your life circumstances right now are wondering how you can endure. Is God good? Does he love me? Does, does, he, does he care? What, what is the ultimate end of this story? And our hope as believers is in resurrection. Our hope as believers is in the redemption that comes at his return. And I want to tell you what, what the Apostle Paul says as he suffered through so many things, as he's been through shipwrecks and beatings and imprisonments and, and persecution, he says this in Romans chapter 8, verse 18. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Not worth comparing. Like, it's not even close. The trials that, that you walk through, take hold of that hope, that the glory that is yet to be revealed is far beyond anything that, that you've experienced in those trials. It will undo and outdo them in every way. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But we hope. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would wait with patience, but we would also be found active, faithful in pursuit of your mission to reach the world with this redemptive good news that while we were dead in our sin and trespasses, 
You, the living God, sent your very son to live among us, to die for us, to take the penalty of our sins upon himself. Lord, we thank you for the resurrection and the empty tomb. And Lord, we thank you that the story is not over there. We are dwelling in this world of corruption and these bodies of sin. And we look forward with, with hope to that coming day in which you return to make all things new. Lord, give us courage and steadfastness when trial comes. Let us be found living as we ought to, Lord, holy and godly, upright, prepared. Lord, we love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.